Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Pico Iyer, a world-renowned journalist and best-selling author. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. There are many places I'd love to see, and I know I would learn from, but if I never see them, I won't be sorry. I mean, I feel like I'm so happy just being being here in my little rented two-room apartment in the middle of nowhere, Japan, where we've been for 29 years, and I would be so grateful if I could spend almost every day here. And again, another thing that the pandemic reminded us of, I, I couldn't travel as much as usual. I don't think I really missed it. What I did find was I'd take a walk along the road behind my mother's house, and it's in the hills of Santa Barbara, and my parents had lived there more than 50 years. I'd never walked to the end of the road, just 20 minutes away before. And I did, and I'd look around, and there was a golden light of early morning, and there's a Pacific Ocean in the distance with the sun scintillant above it. I thought, this is as beautiful as anywhere somebody would go to Capri or Rio de Janeiro to see. It's right in my backyard, and I'd never thought to look at it before. And so too, with this little apartment, my wife and I just started taking walks in every direction, and we came upon bamboo forests and cherry, cherry blossoms, all kinds of wonders. And we'd never in 29 years in this apartment looked around us. And so it was a reminder that all the beauty and the wonder of the world is right here, if only I have the eyes and motivation to, to see. So says the wonderful Pico Iyer, who began his career teaching writing and literature at Harvard before he joined Time as a writer on world affairs. Since then, he's published 15 books, many of which are bestsellers. They've been translated into over 23 languages on subjects ranging from the Dalai Lama to globalism to the Cuban revolution to Islamic mysticism. Pico is perhaps best known for his travel writing, and his most recent book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise, is exactly that. It's the culmination of a lifetime of experiences in the outer world intertwined with a deep and beautiful look at his inner world as he asks himself and the reader how we might come upon paradise in the midst of the reality of our lives. Most of us are steeped in a culture which views paradise as eternally elusive. We live our lives with a deep longing to return to the Eden from which we have been evicted, to a place where the struggles of the human experience melt away. 
But it is in our struggle that we find paradise, Ayer tells us, if only we have the eyes to see it. All right, let's get to our conversation. Let's talk about paradise, which I didn't realize was a Persian word, right? Brought to Greek? Yes, paradija originally brought from Persia by Xenophon when he was serving in the army there. And many of my friends wouldn't believe that of all my travels among the most paradisal places even now is Iran. You go out into these garden restaurants, you stretch out on a divan, these colored lights, and they bring you slices of watermelon and tea. And oh, it's as as heavenly and earthly place as could be imagined. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's what I loved about the thesis of the book, too, is that these places, paradoxically, as you just mentioned, are in some ways hellscapes, right? Like they're this, this yes. combination of the most sought after land, and these vortexes of shadow and light, right? Where the two just coexist. Beautifully said, exactly. So I'm so glad you caught exactly the heart of that book. And that's why a book about paradise has on the cover a picture of a graveyard in the dead of night in mysterious Japan. And and I suppose that sense that we all know we can find paradise in Hawaii and Big Sur, but how do we find it in the thick of real life and in the face of death? And I think I probably like you and so many people during the pandemic were thinking, well, this is the reality we have to live with. This is the home we have to decorate. And how can we make this very difficult world of uncertainty as paradisal as possible? So during the pandemic, it seemed too unseemly a luxury to dream of being in some ravishing place without a care. But how in the midst of our cares could we find something sustaining? Yeah. And it's amazing to that there's this idea throughout and and obviously this is a bigger more universal concept i mean this this is this is the concept right that we've actually been evicted from paradise we've all been kicked out of the garden of eden and we're desperate to reclaim that place or find that place which inherently has to be anywhere but here or that paradise is always outside of us or somewhere else and that that's one of our strivings really Yes, again, I love I love the way you put that. And so, yeah, my favorite line, I think, in, in Paradise Lost is at the very end when Adam is being escorted to the gates of Eden to be pushed out. And the angel says, you have to find a paradise within happier far. And so I think all of us know at some level, our paradise has to be inside us. But as you said, it's so tempting to put paradise in the past, that golden moment we had when we were kids and in love, or in the future in this beautiful never never land we're going to find and not try to find it here and now which is probably the only place we could ever find it and and i think we all know too that paradise like happiness or contentment or peace can't be found by looking but nonetheless at some level we we want to imagine that we are there in the place that's you know the best possible place within. So yes, that uh, how we've all been exiled from paradise. And then I was thinking too, the first human beings produced a killer and the killer's victim, which is not such a good beginning. That's what Adam and Eve gave us. So how do we find a a durable paradise in the midst of the serpents? How do we find a paradise where the serpent is right there, but nonetheless, we think things are as they should be? Yeah. 
What's the cloud of unknowing? You quote from it a few times, and I guess it's an anonymous 14th century guide, but this one quote, by our love, the divine may be reached and held by our thinking, never, right? And again, going to that same point, it's not an intellectual concept or a place to go to. No, you don't get to heaven by reasoning and you don't get to love by reasoning. You know, the beauty of love in all its forms, whether it's love of a parent or or love when you fall in love with somebody, there's no explaining it away. And it comes in the face of explanations, usually. So, yes, the cloud of unknowing, as you say, anonymous text. We don't know if it was written by a man or a woman. But I've always been haunted by that title, a great mystical text. And I think in the Zen tradition, they say that not knowing is our true self. Not knowing is is a kind of intimacy. And I feel that, you know, as I'm sitting here, my wife is across the room and we've been together 35 years. But I think what gives life to our relationship as any relationship is we can't assume that we know the other. She's, She's going to surprise me today and continue surprising me every day we're together. And I hope the same in in reverse. And I almost think of, of what we know as this little illuminated tent up in the Himalaya, surrounded by vast darkness and stars and snow caps, but something so much bigger. And we hang on to what we know, but really it's what we don't know, like love or faith or terror, wonder, that that's what defines our lives. And I know in your blog, you wrote a piece, I think a few weeks ago, about morality as being a cudgel. And I love that. And I, you know, that's sort of the theme of this book now, that more and more people on every side in every tradition saying, I know more than you and I know better than you. And actually, it's what we don't know that unites us. That illusion of knowledge is what's cutting us up and keeping us apart, I think. No, and those inherent values that are hard to articulate. But yes, I mean, and, and even thinking about so many of these the paradises that you visit throughout this book and describe, whether it's Jerusalem or being in Iran, like there is talk about morality as a cudgel, right? And morality police. But this idea of this externally prescribed list or moral code that's clearly, it's not lived, right? You're not supposed to kill people. And yet it's interesting culturally how we continue to give over power to external authorities rather than abiding by our own moral codes. We don't we don't have a collective moral code. That's what I think is so interesting, right? It's it's a really, really good way to put it. Yes, exactly. And so the very center of this book, as you said, is Jerusalem. And the center of Jerusalem is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, by some reckoning the holiest spot in Christendom. Six Christian orders sharing the same space and they're going after one another with brooms and actually waging war on one another because the Franciscans have one reading of the Bible and the Greek Orthodox another. And of course, outside that, Sunni is fighting with Shia and ultra-Orthodox Jew fighting against secular Jew. And it's a sort of reminder that our ideas really separate us, even as our human experience joins us. And I felt that very much during the pandemic, which is that almost everybody in the planet was living with the same fears and anxieties, maybe hopes too. But we really joined together collectively at that level. And yet Democrat and Republican or believer and non-believer were contesting the ideas, which are the least important thing, as a, as a cloud of unknowing describe, points out. And as you said about collective mor- morality, I guess that's why I began the book in Iran. Fascinating place, as you said, it's where the word paradise came into being. But what's so interesting right now is 
that the, the mullahs have their version of paradise, which, as you said, is they're trying to impose a collective morality. And the place called Zara's Paradise in Tehran is actually a graveyard. So for them, paradise is especially reserved for martyrs who give up their lives for Islam. And meanwhile, individual citizens have their vision of paradise, which is kind of probably sex and drugs and rock and roll, what's going on behind closed doors. And both sides, while competing, are actually invoking the Sufis who speak for that mystical truth that that paradise is within. And it's only something we can find almost beyond morality. You know, Rumi said, there's a place beyond good and evil, let me meet you there. In the sense that beyond morality, and as you said, beyond thinking is where, where paradise, where paradise exists and where love exists. Love is, is, is the place that no thought can reach, one hopes. Yeah. And isn't, I don't know Sufism incredibly well, but isn't the idea too that there's this like deep, deep yearning to be rejoined with the beloved or this idea of, of course, we're not home, like we will return at yes. some point. You do know it well. No, exactly. It, the religion <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a love affair and as intimate and, and soulful and as hard to put into ideas as, as the way we feel about the person that we love. Exactly so. And, and at one point at the heart of the book, I had a, a Sufi woman saint, Rabia of Basra, who apparently walked through the streets with a flame and a pail of water. And she said she wanted to pour the flame on anybody who said that you get to paradise by good deed or that anyone who is hoping for paradise or anyone who is fearing hell that's not what religion is about it's it's about it's about love it's about the surrender and surrender to what we don't know and can can never know and as you said longing i like that word longing because it's it it speaks for something we can't put words to really yeah it's such a beautiful word as is belonging like the two together i think are so stunning and something that I think, you know, is a big theme in Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet, but that that sort of gentle, subtle melancholy that drives so many of us, you know, that desire to return somewhere, return to ourselves, which I think anyone can really identify. And again, I don't want to say I'm not someone who is like, oh, I'm going to go to heaven someday. There's a better place to be. I think it's really that sort of like deeper you know, returning to source or returning to the earth or returning back home rather than going someplace else. Finding who we are all along and, and recalling what we've forgotten and, and realizing, as you say, that we don't have to be anywhere except right here with our with our wise op eyes open. Yes, I actually was corresponding with Susan when she was writing that book, especially about Leonard Cohen, whom we both admire, who's the sort of <laughs> prince of crown prince of longing and actually has that song, Take This, Take This Longing, but put himself through all these spiritual disciplines to try to 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 cut beyond that. And so here as I say that, I'm remembering two things. Here where I sit in Japan, when you walk around a temple in Kyoto, sometimes, I, have you been to Japan? Mm -mm. Oh, Sadly, no. Um, I know, I'm coming. Good. <laughs> when you walk around certain temples in Japan, as you enter, you look down and it's written, look beneath your feet. It's saying just what you were mm. saying. Don't look for heaven out there or in the never, never or in the future, right here. And just last week, I went to the famous temple, Ryoanji, which is the one with the dry rock garden and the 15 
stones and nobody's been able to figure out what they mean. But just around the corner from that most celebrated of rock gardens is a water basin and it has four characters on them. And really what it says is, what I have is all I need. Just Mm -hmm. that. We don't need more. We don't need other. We don't need to be elsewhere than we are. So, and then we have that in our own tradition. You know, I have a lot of Thoreau in the book. And I think he said, heaven is under our feet as much as above our heads. So, but as you know, it's hard to banish those visions of an external paradise and hard to realize it may be as easy to grasp in Compton as in Maui. <laughs> right? No, yeah. it's so true. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I want to talk about Jerusalem again a little bit, but sort of opening the book in Tehran, the the way that you take us to all of these destinations and sort of putting, I like, I think you describe yourself as unaffiliated, which is how I think of myself as well. I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious. I'm unaffiliated. (laughs) But as you travel and feel the, the energy of these places. I mean, that. can you talk a little bit about that driver in Tehran? That was such a stunning story. I have the passage for you, but that idea that, can you talk about your experience yeah. with him? Yes, yeah. yes. And then we'll come back to energy because that's such a beautiful word to use, magnetism. So yes, my very first day in Iran, I'd been dreaming of the place for 40 years. I finally made it there a few years ago. My first night, I stole down to the taxi desk in the lobby and I left my official guide and driver behind and I said can you find somebody to take me into the city to the central shrine and a young guy maybe 30 years old very friendly speaking unexpectedly good English showed up and we went into his battered compact we started driving through these streets that were illuminated with golden or green and blue lights and he said have you come for the festival I said, no, what festival? And apparently it was the celebration of the birthday of the saint who's buried at the center of the shrine, which is the largest mosque in the world. Five million people had come from every corner of the Shia world to celebrate this. And so when we got to the main mosque, which is seven huge marble courtyards, we could barely move. Everywhere there were people sitting on the ground, sleeping, because they were spending seven days and seven nights there, eating, releasing doves into the blue-black sky, and they were surrounded by huge screens in which these turbaned ayatollahs were delivering sermons. And we came to the central innermost sanctum where the saint was buried 1,100 years ago. And my driver, who I just met, figured, you know, this guy's sincere. He's come to learn about our culture. So he invited me in. It was jam-packed. We could barely move. And people were sobbing and pushing little kids to the front so they could touch the grill in front of which the, the saint lay. And at one point I looked across the room and I saw the driver's hand was on his heart and he was walking backwards. So he never presented his back to the long dead saint. And there were these tears welling in his eyes. So I thought, my goodness, this is what a beautiful picture of Islamic piety. And then we left and we walked back to his car. And as we walked back, he told me that he had a wife 
who was expecting her first child and was waiting for him in England. <laughs> and then he told me how he had stolen out of Iran and paid a human trafficker $2,500 to smuggle him into England in the back of a truck, breathing through a tube so he wouldn't be detected. And then the British government had very magnanimously spent three years giving him a court-appointed solicitor and translator so he could get asylum. So he was now able to live in England and having, but having risked his life to steal out of Iran, he was stealing back every summer, risking his life again to see the mother and the mosque and the hometown he missed so much. And so when he dropped me off my hotel at the end of that first night in Iran, I thought, I don't, I don't know a thing about this place. And what was striking was, as I said, I'd been thinking about it for 40 years. I'd written long articles on, for Time magazine about Iran, though I'd never been. I'd financed my first book with a 20-page article for the Smithsonian about Iranian history. And then I'd published a whole novel partly set in Iran, though I'd never been. So I thought, I'm pretty well prepared for this place. I'd done four years of research. And after... 16 hours, I found I didn't know a thing. It's very useful, humbling, how even in the age of information, we know so little, and how what we get through screens or at a distance cannot begin to, co to compensate for the reality of actually encountering a place in the flesh. And, and when he dropped me off, I thought, gosh, you know, Iran has been in our headlines every day for these last many years. And I'd never heard about a very devout Islamic soul who didn't want to live in this Islamic Republic. And I'd never read about somebody, um, a dissident, stealing back into the country he had stolen out of in order to stay in touch with the things that he he loved. And so it just reminded me, I don't have a clue. And and that's how most of us are with most of, of, of the world. And so you're right, that's the starting point of the book, that even the places we think we've read up about and we've researched for years and years have a reality endlessly surprising. And that's the beauty of life, never fails to surprise us. Never. I mean, I remember i not as knowledgeable about Russia as what you just described, but I had always wanted to go. I've read so much Russian literature and I went now probably 10 or 15 years ago with my mom on a trip. And same thing, I like was so, I thought emotionally prepared for Russia. And then we get to Moscow and I was like, whoa, this was not, this was nothing, nothing like what I thought that the, the emotional tenor of this place would be. And I found the country impenetrable. I did not understand it at all. And it was it was shocking to me. It was the first time I'd really had that much of a had that experience of complete dis disconnection and dislocation from a country and culture that I thought I would love because I thought I understood it. And it's so different. So different. And I love I love that word impenetrable because I think that's really what life is. And I mean, I often feel I've I've lived here in Japan 35 years and I feel like in many ways no less than when I first arrived. And that's I'm grateful for that. <laughs> I, I'm freed from the illusion of knowing this. And I think for me, the one reason I brought out this book and called it The Half Known Life was I think we need that humility more than ever for many reasons. One is that in the age of Google, it's easier than ever to assume we know something. Yeah. I think in my grandparents' day, they didn't assume they knew anything about Iran or Russia. But now you or I can sit in Los Angeles and see every detail of the festival I was describing online and go to parts of Russia 
on TV or on screen that would be very hard to get to in person. And so we feel we're armed with this knowledge, so to speak. And yet it's it's really a, an illusion or a delusion of knowledge. D.H. Lawrence, a hundred years ago, said our grandparents knew the world better than we do because we've we've we think we know it, essentially. Yeah. No, we, we really do. So talk to talk to us about the energy of places and sort of that the sensation. You talked about it in Jerusalem, for example, sort of I want to say like how moved you were by by that physical location, but in all of these holy places and obvi- and was it in Ethiopia? No, Australia. That was stunning that part, particular part of the book, but talk to us about the energy of these sacred holy zones. Yes, they have magnetism. And we often respond to people who have charisma. I've spent a lot of time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama or his great friend Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It's hard to be in the room with somebody like that and not feel happy and uplifted and and cleansed (laughs) of many of our worries. And and places in a different way have this extraordinary power. So you said perfectly, you know, I'm unaffiliated. So when I went to Jerusalem, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Muslim, I'm not a Christian. And I thought I can be a detached observer watching the the frenzies and passions of all these different traditions. But I could feel that place. And to this day, sometimes I'll be walking down the street in Santa Barbara and I feel this pull to Jerusalem, even though I have no official connection with it or any of its traditions. It's it's got me under its spell. And I sometimes think of places like that. You know, sometimes you'll be walking down a street and you'll see a kind of bedraggled old man in a coat and he's shouting out wild prophecies and you can't help listening. And he's not necessarily the person you want to be seated next to at the dinner table, but there's he's got a power and a truth and an intensity you you can't turn away from. And so Jerusalem is a perfect example. And sometimes I tell friends who like to travel, there's somewhere it's not particularly safe or comfortable or pleasant or reassuring, but it's irresistible. And, and it gives me more than when I go to beautiful Hawaii because it throws up all these questions and leaves me unsettled and, and humbles me. And so I remember in Jerusalem in particular, every morning I would wake up at first light or before first light, four in the morning sometimes, I'd go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and I would sit in this little back corner nothing there the stone ledge sometimes a tiny flickering candle it couldn't like be a more unassuming place absolutely nothing to worship and yet i felt there was a presence there even though i'm 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 not a christian i couldn't stay keep away i went back again again and again so it was a reminder of how again the the ideology you officially subscribe to is ultimately immaterial to to what moves you. You said that I was moved, and that's exactly the word to use. I was moved and transformed and almost brought to tears, just going again and again to this empty, broken place. And and I couldn't put an explanation to it, nor nor would I want to, but that's why it's the reason people keep going back to Jerusalem or Varanasi, crazy, mad, engulfing holy city in India, or many of these places. And with Australia, it also brought up that unsettling question that here I am in a pla- in a holy place, but I'm an outsider and I know so little about it and I can't read it. I'm likely to trample over the holy text. I'm likely to profane it. And so probably it's better if I stay away. And I think the indigenous people in Australia probably feel this keen sense that outsiders should stay away because we don't know how to work with those forces. And for them, the land itself is a kind of scripture over 60,000 years. And we bumble in and, and are likely to deface everything in our 
in our ignorance. And yeah, that's a question that paradise often arises. And as you know, I have a chapter about Ladakh, this beautiful kingdom in the mm. Himalayas. And when you get there, it's very, it's peaceful and it's self-sufficient and it's preserved this Buddhist culture for centuries. And it's easy to feel that you're in Shangri-La. And then the second question is, if this is perfection, what am I doing here and what can I bring to it? I'm probably only likely to undo this paradise. I'm the serpent being imported into Eden. <laughs> probably it'd be better if I weren't here at all. This place has everything it needs and it doesn't need somebody like me who might only disrupt things. So we all know how if you do find a paradise, sometimes you want to be quiet about it so nobody else will come and spoil it. But sometimes you also think, well, I'm in danger of spoiling it just by my presence. And the, the more impressed by it I am, maybe the further I should stay away. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, to think about land and these places, as you described in, in Australia, where the scripture is written in the soil versus these shrines, temples, churches, where we expect to find God. And not that the two can't coexist, but it's interesting, the the sort of vorte vortex or energy of these specific places, then the people who are there. And you, you write about Jerusalem it had long been too easy to say that Jerusalem is our world in miniature, the family home in which everyone is squabbling with his siblings over a late father's will. Because then there's that too, right? Like there's this idea of Abraham, the patriarch, the father of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, the fact that we are all, at least that particular part of the world, siblings or related and and yet completely... <laughs> unable to bridge differences within a family but yes and i don't whose know land, yeah whose land is this yeah and again it goes back to what you were saying about collective morality my sense is if there is a paradise it basically has to belong to everybody it's not a place where you or i are going to be kept out because we voted for the wrong person or even that we happen to be born to the wrong tradition this land belongs to you and me you know as, as <laughs> and so yes and and yet, there's no question that certain places just have this power inherent in them. I, I think you spent time in Sedona, and it attracts mm -hmm. people. It feels like a vortex of energy. I'm constantly going to Big Sur, and other my friends go to Ojai. So these places stand out because they've got something that you know Beverly Hills doesn't have necessarily. But what it no is, no vortex in Beverly Hills. <laughs> I don't think so. No. <laughs> and other places, yeah. I mean, inner Australia does have that. It, the land almost vibrates with it. But sorry, I, I cut you off. You're about to. No, no, no. I just, I think it's, as you said, this land, when we think about claiming sacred or holy land, like how do we actually come to share it and recognize mm. it's beyond each of us? I mean, this is yeah. like the problem that's as old as time, right? Yes, yes. And that's why and you probably saw that almost I'd say the two central figures in this book are Thomas Merton and the Dalai mm -hmm. Lama. Thomas Merton, because He's, there's a Trappist monk for 27 years who found his great realization when he saw some Buddhas in Sri Lanka and it was famously open to other traditions. In fact, he'd been brought to Catholicism by a Hindu Swami, of all things. And then the Dalai Lama, who's probably one of the most respected religious figures in the world, and he published a book called Beyond Religion, precisely because he's had a front seat view on what we were talking about, how much cruelty and intolerance can be practiced in the name of religion. And he says he's a defender of Islam. He learns from rabbis. He's delivered lectures on the Gospels. 
And most of all, he bows before science, which offers us these kind of universal truths. And I think he has this sense after 40 years of traveling the world constantly and meeting every country and interesting person that the kindness and responsibility are perhaps more important than, than, than religion and that religion can often take us into complex and divided places, whereas human responsibility is what brings us together. And again, during the pandemic, I was thinking how physicians and nurses I think so heroically were responding to people, regardless of whether they were Democrats or Republicans or Jewish mm-hmm. or Muslim or nothing at all. And just as the virus and forest fires and hurricanes attack us all as kind of equal opportunity employers, they're not making divisions that, between us. And it's I think we all are feeling it more and more. It's the divisions we humans make that get us in trouble, forgetting about the so many things that that join us together. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Is it the origin story of Kabbalah or is it Sufism? This is the thing. Everything mixes together in my head, but maybe that's the point. But that (laughs) there was this sort of great shattering and these points of light, the light was distributed everywhere and that which I thought was such a beautiful metaphor of this. And you can think of certain places as having maybe more light than others, but that in the, in the way that the Dalai Lama thinks about the world, his reverence for science or Judaism or any other faith that everyone's holding these discrete disparate parts of this puzzle. And I think it was, I think it's a Kabbalah story and that all of the pieces together make God's face, but that we're all holding different parts of this whole and each part is required. And so to just dis- deny, you know, 
another person's experience is to make us less than. Uh, so beautifully said. Exactly right. So we're so a thousand points of light, really. But we take it out of the political domain and really as a, as a human truth. But you're absolutely right. And I think I'm not a Buddhist, but the core notion of Buddhism is interdependence, that every one of us is our circumstances are shaped by everything around us. And again, we saw that in a virus time. Somebody sneezes in Wuhan and somebody in California gets sick. And mm -hmm. we know that in the global world. And so exactly as you were saying, we, we can't cut out any of the world because we're knit together in a kind of web and depend on each other the way our right hand depends on our left hand in many ways. Will you tell the story about the Dalai Lama? Because I know you traveled with him for a long time. You are writing about Indra's net, this idea of interdependence, and that when someone would stand up and ask him about, or ask him about being disappointed in a dream, and I think it was, these are big dreams. And can you talk about his response to that? Because it made yes. me laugh. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the essence of him, so practical. So yes, as you say, I'm, I'm lucky because I I've known him for 48 years and for 10 straight Novembers, I traveled with him across Japan by his side, literally every minute of the day, having lunch with him every day, stopping off at convenience stores to buy cans of tea to drink. And also he was nice enough to sit, let us sit in, me and my wife, on all his private audiences. And so as well as attending his public addresses and almost every day there'd be a public address and at almost every one, somebody would get up and ask his very heartfelt, sincere question, what do you do when your dream doesn't work out? When you dream of reversing climate change, bringing peace to the Middle East, helping your kids grow up in a, in a fruitful way, and it just doesn't work out. And every time he'd look over them to that person with great kindness and a kind of uncle's warmth and say, wrong dream. <laughs> and then he would say, you have to be very realistic and rigorous in, in fashioning your dreams. You have to research and analyze and really think about what is a viable dream. If your dream is to marry bad Brad Pitt, it's not going to happen. And if your dream <laughs> is to find in your partner something that Brad Pitt would envy and many qualities Brad Pitt could never have, that could happen tomorrow. That's very, very doable. So when we talk about our disappointments or when we have utopian longings that don't work out, the fault is not in the universe, it's in us. And we haven't been clear-sighted enough in organizing our dreams. And he's he's such a perfect example of that. You know, I remember... I saw him the day after he was awarded the Nobel Prize. And typically he was in Newport Beach at the time, engaged <laughs> in discussion with a group of scientists. And he's just staying at, at a host house, a regular house in Newport Beach. And I intruded on him at this exciting moment when he just seemed to receive the realization of his dreams being recognized by the Nobel Committee. And all the Tibetans were celebrating and everyone who cared about Tibet thought, you know, this is the end of our problems. And he didn't begin to think about that. And he, I said to him, congratulations, your holiness. And he said, I really wonder if I've, if I've begun to do enough. And this isn't the end of any story. It's a beginning and doesn't really suggest anything. He said, all I can do is that every day take one step and try my best and in the hope that as time goes on, more and more people will walk the same path. And then finally, maybe there will, there will be a better outcome. But it was very striking to me that at maybe the happiest moment of his life, or the, the one that seemed the best validation of what he was attempting, he was so realistic. And it was as if he was saying, you know, I, I have to be practical in my hopes and aspirations. And I, I'm not going to be able to change the world. I'm not going to be able to reverse China's policy. I'm not going to be able to bring peace everywhere overnight. All I can do is 
take these tiny steps. And again, I remember one time, a few years after that, I was in his, I was staying across from his home in Dharamsala and I'd go to see him every afternoon. We'd have a long talk. And at one point, he re- and this is when he was at the height of his celebrity, having won the Nobel Prize. Hollywood was making a couple of movies about him. Everyone was coming and, and celebrating him and, and helping Tibet. And at one point he said, you know, one time I was in Soweto, the, in near Johannesburg, and I asked to meet just a regular person. And I was taken into a little house and I met a man there and he had no hope whatever. And he said, we're living under apartheid. We have no power. I just don't think my life is worth anything. And the Dalai Lama spoke to him for maybe an hour. And at the end of that hour, the Dalai Lama told me that man really seemed to have confidence. And so, and then the Dalai Lama looked across at me and he said, I really feel I made some contribution. I did something significant that day. I gave one person more confidence than he had before. And from the Dalai Lama's point of view, winning the Nobel Prize or the reverence of the world, none of that really counts for anything. But if you can have one genuine intimate encounter with somebody and make that person feel a little better, that's as great an achievement as as he is capable of. And so it's another example of being realistic about what one hopes to achieve. But it was so touching to see this man that the world idolizes. And his great point of pride was he'd had one talk with a regular guy and made that guy feel feel better, which I suppose is, you know, I always think of the Dalai Lama and the Buddha as physicians, basically doctors, and they know they can't save us forever. And they know that their diagnoses are not always going to be right. But if at one point they can see somebody who's suffering a lot and send them away with less suffering, there's there's something really to be happy about. Um, No, there is. And it's interesting. And I don't know whether this is a more modern affliction or this has been humanity always, but it's certainly now, right? Like we live in this age of influencers and followers and this idea that you have to amass this incredible amount of, I don't know, power. I guess it's influence to have a difference and that you should be influencing people, millions of people in order to have a life that matters. And it's like, where? how did we get here? You know, Jesus had 12 disciples 12 <laughs> perfect yes yes and truly if you look at many of the people who do have three million followers they're not ones that all of us would want to be emulating and you're right i think the world is crying out for leaders that we can really cherish and as you say the the numbers the least of it again i know that in your blog you you told the story of i think it's the chinese person and the horse and that you don't know what's a good a good, a blessing or a curse. You don't know what's a good experience or bad experience. And certainly true, the older I get in life, the more I see that I can't begin even to tell whether something that happened to me was a good thing or a bad thing. Suddenly, when I was quite young, I got the Mm. job of my dreams. And then I saw that could be a golden prison. And that really the most important thing was to leave that job. Otherwise, I could wake up and I was 70 years old and I'd never really lived. And then another time, like so many nowadays, my house and family home in Santa Barbara burned to the ground and I lost everything I had in the world. And now these many years later, I probably wouldn't say that was a bad thing. It actually opened the door to many things I wouldn't have done. Otherwise I could live more simply and I had a clearer sense of direction. I realized I didn't need to replace most of the things I lost. And it made me remember what really I did have and what wouldn't get lost. I just read, actually again, from the Sufis, they say, the only thing that's yours is what can't get lost in a shipwreck. But you could say- Ah. 
don't get lost in the forest. <laughs> in other words, none of the material stuff that, you know, maybe the people you love or the, the values you cherish, they, they're still with you after you've lost everything in the world. So in the same way, yeah, I mean, our sense of who's a, a person worth emulating and who isn't seems to be in <laughs> disarray. Sometimes. It's disarray. We quantify yeah. it in, in exactly the wrong way. And it's so interesting that the, the people most worthy of admiration are probably the ones who are not seeking it out and who, as with the Dalai Lama, are only thinking of you know, the one person across the room rather than receiving 20 million followers on Twitter. I, I, I once saw Pope Francis give a talk at TED and he said very pointedly, the more power you have, the more you need to be humble. And I think he was speaking to many world leaders, but he was speaking as a man of great power and authority himself. And he radiated humility and modesty. His presence was as much a teaching as, as his words and, and a very good lesson, I think. Yeah, um, as is the one from the Dalai Lama. And I'm so flattered that you read anything on my website. That's very sweet. And I love that. I love that parable that you mentioned essentially of this man who I can't tell it because I'll butcher it, but it's on my site. But this idea of like, you don't, it's a long game and something that might seem good or bad in the moment shouldn't be judged. And often the things that those boxes of darkness bear the greatest gifts. Boxes um, of darkness. That's, that's wonderful. Yes, exactly. It's a long game and it's also a super complicated game. And it's we were saying a minute ago, interconnected game. Which is why yeah. you can't judge things in isolation. And that, you know, so my house burnt down, oh, taken in isolation, that's a terrible thing. But it's part of a much larger story that features you know, many other things. And I, I felt that during the pandemic, too, that it made so many things impossible. I tried to think, what things has it made possible? And there were many really, really yeah. good things that opened the door to things that otherwise I was sleepwalking past. And I think it helped many of us think about what we really cared about and think about how we could stay closest to what we care about and just sharpened our priorities because the rest of the time we're in such a rush we couldn't really see what was important we couldn't sift what was trivial from what was essential and suddenly hitting the pause button if you were lucky enough to survive you could see oh maybe I wasn't living in the best possible way before and maybe I could live in a better way going forwards absolutely Again, think we think back on the pandemic for all the terrible suffering and grief and loss, economic and, and physical, every other way, many of us will see that it gave us things we wouldn't have got otherwise, good things. No, certainly it was like a paradox in training and having to hold multiple realities at the same time and of, oh, this is awful and this is great and this is great and this is awful and yes. recognizing that they can all, all of these things can coexist and part of the human experience is not to deny the one or the other, but learn how to let them mutually exist together. Because I have so many friends too who had a great COVID and then they have so much shame about that. Yeah. And so then they're trying to sort of suppress that reality, if that makes sense. And it's like, no, this is life. Like, this is life. This is both. And the two need to come up and exist together. And if you did have a great COVID, that means you have so much to share with other people, many of whom had a really hard COVID. It's like almost a question of privilege. I feel that those of us who are relatively fortunate, as you said, shouldn't be embarrassed about that, but just, just be mindful that we have all these advantages not everybody has, and it's our ability to, to share those. And um, Totally. Totally. Yeah. And of course, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, as I, I end my 
book in, in Varanasi, which is the craziest place on earth that feels like a Hieronymus Bosch on psychedelics. It's so, <laughs> so much going on. And yet the city of death, and it's a place where people are going to be buried, is a city of joy. And, and that in some ways, that's where in, in this book, I, I find what I have to take as paradise, the place where sacred and profane and the good and bad, every possible thing is thrown together. And it made me think that holiness is a place where you stop making a division between sacred and profane and actually see just what you were describing mm. in, in describing the pandemic. This, you're throwing your arms around the whole confused, complex reality. I um, love that. I love, too, that your parents warned you away from Varanasi and that they'd never been. That's so yes. wild. <laughs> and they're both Hindus and they're both professors of comparative religion and deep in the wisdom of every tradition, including Hinduism. But just the right, that the reality of Varanasi was too much. Have you have you been there by any chance? No, no. I've only been to in India, I've only been to Rishikesh. I really need to go back to India. Well, Rishikesh would, I mean, you've tasted India. You know how intense it is. It's a, no need for therapy or LSD for India. And Varanasi is India to the max. So yeah. think, I've never been to Rishikesh, but I think that would be an, a very powerful, interesting place to be. It's stunning. And all of it. I mean, it's so human and sacred and one of those places that you can't totally process. Like you are just part of it. And yeah. you're just there. You're just part of the ritual and yeah. sitting and watching and letting it all unfold. It's not a place, or at least in my experience, where you do a lot of thinking. It's not like a quiet processing place. It's a yeah. in it place. Well, you just described the ending of my book and the point of my book perfectly. As you said, <laughs> you can't process it. You just have to be part of it. And you know, at the end of my book, they am walking around and around the stupa with the Tibetans and I'm not a Tibetan or a Buddhist. But as you said, <laughs> it's, all, it's all one can do. Just be part of the pageant and the carnival. Yes. Um, yeah. And there's no understanding it. There's no getting on top of it. You're always at the bottom of it, probably. But fine. Um, yeah. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly, they use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. 
All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. I loved how you also at the end brought it back. You talk about the Franciscan priest Richard Rohr and how he says, our goal in life is not to become spiritual, but to become human. Wow. That's, oh, that's my beautiful. I love that. Yes. And that's from the... <laughs> Seemingly very spiritual person, a Franciscan priest for 60 years or whatever. No, I, that, I, I keep on thinking back that sentence. And, you know, again, Thomas Merton, his colleague in a way, says, you suffer most if you try to avoid suffering. And if you turn mm-hmm. your way away from your face away from the difficulty of the world, then you're really in trouble, probably. And then, of course, the other central sentence in that final chapter is from a Zen teacher. I think he was in Los Angeles, actually, when he said that. And wonderfully, he was thinking about Jesus on the cross and the, the three people who were being crucified together. And mm. I think he probably shocked his Western students by saying, in your struggle is your paradise. That's where your paradise is, in the crucifixion. Which is, you could sort of imagine a Christian person saying that, but from a Zen teacher, that was a embracing. Paradise is, is not Shambhala or Shangri-La. It, it's the struggle. And do you think he meant by that, that there's, it's like in that moment of allowance or letting, letting it be, that that's where peace comes from? That's where we have to make our peace, maybe. Yes, I loved allowance and letting it be and assuming that you can't control or anticipate anything. Stephen Mitchell, your wise translator from the Zen tradition, I think he says something like, paradise is being at ease with the joy and sorrows of the world. And so that's probably equivalent to what Ada Roshi was was saying there. Yes, at peace with or an accepting of the fact that all this stuff is happening. We can't process it or make sense of it. The message of the book of Job, too, probably. Mm-hmm. I often think, and I was thinking a lot during the pandemic, but reality is our partner. So it's like our spouse. And our spouse is difficult much of the time and impossible <laughs> some of the time. But We've chosen her or him, and we know that's the person. We have to find a way to work with that. And I think that's how reality is. It's often going to be exasperating and confounding, but we can't look away from it, and we have to come to a, a convivial agreement with it so that we can produce something useful as as in any human partnership. And maybe that's also what Father Richard Rohr was saying about, you know, we we sometimes distract ourselves by looking at the spiritual stuff or things with capital letters or abstractions rather than the human reality, which is where really everything has to take place. Um, yeah. We like to bypass. It's true. It's yes. easier to go out there. Again, it's easier to go and find that external paradise to some than it is to sit with ourselves. Yes. And, and and we're sort of all seeking transcendence, but really our lives have to take place in the untranscended <laughs> place and untranscended life. And Jesus, whom you mentioned, and the Buddha, they were human beings just trying to yeah. find a better way of navigating the world, really. And 
Yeah. And I mean, you could argue that Jesus came to have a human experience if you believe he, you know, is a, well, I think we're all spiritual beings having a physical experience and he is no different. And to be human is quite amazing if we could come to accept that. <laughs> yes. And then what you were just saying reminded me, of, I think Teilhard de Chardin said, and this is probably what you were almost quoting, we're not humans having a spiritual existence where spiritual beings having a human existence something like that yeah but yeah no it, 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 exactly so yeah I end the book in Varanasi as you know but six miles away from this chaos is a very peaceful place of Sanat where the Buddha delivered his first discourse and when I was in Varanasi the Dalai Lama happened to be giving talks and in Sanat and his talks there were on the Bodhisattva's way of life and just that notion of bodhisattva. So for the Mahayana Buddhist, a really enlightened person is not somebody who's found paradise, but somebody who comes, leaves paradise behind to help the rest of us. You know, mm. that, that, that the bodhisattva is one who turns his back on the gates of paradise because the rest of us are still in confusion and suffering. And, and that's where he has to serve rather than just sitting in the heavenly fields enjoying his uh, mellow or whatever it might be. <laughs> enjoying his reward. I love that. That's beautiful. Where do you want to go next? Are there any earthly paradises you haven't explored yet? Or do you feel like you've seen the entire world? <laughs> no, I'll never see the entire world. <laughs> I'll never see the entire anything as the half known life. But no, I mean, I feel I've been very lucky to grow up in a generation and in a situation where I've been able to see a lot of places. There are many places I'd love to see and I know I would learn from, but if I never see them, I won't be sorry. I mean, I feel like I'm so happy just being being here in my little rented two-room apartment in the middle of nowhere, Japan, where we've been for 29 years. And I would be so grateful if I could spend almost every day here. And again, another thing that the pandemic reminded us of, I, I couldn't travel as much as usual. I don't think I really missed it. What I did find was I'd take a walk along the road behind my mother's house and it's in the hills of Santa Barbara and my parents had lived there more than 50 years I'd never walked to the end of the road just 20 minutes away before and I did and I'd look around and there was a golden light of early morning and there's a Pacific Ocean in the distance with the sun scintillant above it I thought this is as beautiful as anywhere somebody would go to Capri or Rio de Janeiro to see. It's right in my backyard and I'd never thought to look at it before. And so too, with this little apartment, my wife and I just started taking walks in every direction and we came upon bamboo forests and cherry, cherry blossoms, all kinds of wonders. And we'd never in 29 years in this apartment looked around us. And so mm -hmm. it was a reminder that all the beauty and the wonder of the world is right here. If only I have the eyes and motivation to, to see it. So, <laughs> and There's no is place, place like... <laughs> There's no place like home. It's true. If you, especially at my age, you know, I've chosen the home that agrees with me. It's not just the home where I happen to be born or grow up, but of the places I visited, Japan was the one that answered some longing in me, I guess, and place of great kindness and beauty and grace. And, and also, as you said, you know, impenetrable and unfathomable. And if I were here for 40 more years, I still wouldn't understand it. And that's a wonder too. Yeah. I'm, we're lucky, those of us who get to choose the places where we live. Um, yeah, no, certainly. And or, yeah, who come to understand the culture of those places deeply in a way that's felt that's part of the experience or that can really understand what it feels like to go home here. Yes. And it's always been 
the beauty of travel is it helps you appreciate home more and all the things you take for granted. I mean, I used to travel to very difficult places. And then when I would return to Santa Barbara, how lucky we are in Southern California to live in such relative comfort and ease for all the difficult mm-hmm. assist and how easy to forget that when you're in the traffic jam on the 405. (laughs) I don't know. It rained here this morning, which was actually such joy and a gift to wake up to. I'm like, a raincoat. How about that? We need rain. So In in California right now, rain is the great blessing, not sunshine. That's a reminder (laughs) of what we were saying. You don't know what is good or bad. We're actually chafing against the constant sunshine and longing for gray days and drizzle. (laughs) Exactly. Boxes Full of Darkness, that's the poem, The Uses of Sorrow by Mary Oliver, which goes, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. Such a beautiful sentiment. I really loved Pico's latest book. It's so beautiful. And he's an incredible travel writer, but he also obviously is spiritually gifted with his ability to, in a very nuanced way, decipher the energy of spaces and places. And as he describes himself, because he's unaffiliated with any religion, he also has an objectivity to be able to take in what's around him without judgment and distill wisdom and observe what's true. He talks a lot about Thomas Merton in this book and finding him in various places around the globe. I'm sure many of you are Thomas Merton fans. And he writes, it was striking to me that Merton had found what he needed in the cessation of all questions, even if that would never be the same thing as answers. I remembered how he's written that to have all the answers might be proof that you weren't asking the right questions. Uncertainty was perhaps the place where all of us, even a monk, have to make our home. But I was also moved that a man who had devoted his life to the Christian God had been so stirred by faces of the Buddha as if heaven was not the private property of any group. I love that because it suggests, as so much of the book is about, that heaven, paradise, it really belongs to all of us. And these places can't be claimed. All right, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. 
I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.